DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. In 2017, the University of Georgia held a ceremony to rebury remains discovered during a campus construction project. DNA analysis showed that most of the dead were likely enslaved people. In 2018, UGA created a memorial to these individuals at Baldwin Hall, which houses the Anthropology and Criminal Justice Departments at the university. But members of the Athens community and others say that's just not enough. In just a moment, we're going to hear from a student who's been following the story for UGA's independent student newspaper and an historian pressing SEC schools to confront their role in slavery. But for context, here is Brad. Bradley George reporting on the reburial for a GBB in 2017. Workers are putting the finishing touches on a new wing of Baldwin Hall. It should have been finished a year ago, but construction stopped as UGA anthropologist Lori Reitzema and her team searched for unmarked graves from the mid-19th century. Some of them remained unexcavated because they were partially underneath the foundation of the building. And from the remaining graves that were excavated, 63 of them had some kind of human remains that we could actually observe and study. Of the graves they DNA tested, most were black. Given the time period, many were likely slaves. But the university's announcements about the discovery made no mention of slavery, and the remains were put in a cemetery that was once segregated. Those decisions upset Fred Smith, former president of the local NAACP. He says UGA has failed to acknowledge its history with slavery. They have a slave legacy, and let's deal with it from all points of view. Michelle Cook is UGA's chief diversity officer. Her great-great-great-grandparents were born into slavery and lived in Athens their whole lives. She says the university had to follow proper procedure for reburying the remains. And one of their recommendations was that the remains be reinterred in a cemetery close to the original burial site and with the capacity to accommodate the original configuration of the burial spaces. Best practice would have been not to move these individuals at all. Anthropologist Michael Trinkley is director of the Chikora Foundation, which restores abandoned grave sites and cemeteries. The fact that these individuals are 50 years, 100 years, 200 years old, to many does not reduce the trauma of the event of, of removal. Not far from the construction site, Linda Davis is leading efforts to restore a cemetery used for decades by Athens' black community. She wishes the Baldwin Hall remains were reburied here, a reminder of the lingering effects of slavery and segregation. I want us to not make a conscious decision to ignore our, ignore our past because we don't like it. I don't like it either. But I cannot get past the strength and the conviction and the courage that it gives me to know that I am a descendant of survivors. The University of Georgia says the 105 grave sites are reinterred individually under a granite marker that describes how they were found. For NPR News, I'm Bradley George in Athens. And we're picking up that story now with Sophie Gratis from the Red and Black Student Newspaper. Sophie, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. A couple of years have passed since UGA reburied these remains of those 100-plus individuals into proper graves. Earlier this school year, the university built a monument to honor that legacy. And we do have a photo on our Facebook group, so you can take a look at that. But Sophie, could you walk us around that? What does it look like? 
Sure. I mean, it's pretty simple. Um, it's got four, or not four, but it's got some square columns in the middle that kind of overlap each other. It's got a stone uh, memorial on the side talking about how the remains were found, a little bit about the history. Um, but I'd say it really kind of shines when um, students actually hold events there. So, for example, earlier in February, during Black History Month, there was an SGA-hosted um, kind of memorial for the slave remains where some students came and had a vigil, so they had candles, they sang songs. So those types of celebrations really make the memorial shine, I would say. So the memorial begins in memory of the unknown individuals interred in this area during the 19th century and goes on to describe how their remains were discovered and identify. Then it says the University of Georgia recognizes the contributions of these and other enslaved individuals and honors their legacy. May they continue to rest in peace. How did the Athens community respond at the time when it was dedicated? Well, there was a protest, actually. So at the memorial dedication on November 16th, 2018, there were protesters, and that included Commissioner Mariah Parker um, and then other community members. Um, and, you know, the response wasn't necessarily a response of joy, specifically from the black community. Um, while the memorial itself covers most of what happened in terms of, you know, when the remains were found and how they were dealt with, um, it the memorial service was not responded to with um, much celebration. It was more the administration kind of making an effort to show what had been done. Um, but community members weren't very happy about it. So who, you mentioned community members, but I am also seeing NAACP people, um, members of faculty. W what are they asking? What kind of action do they want to see from the university beyond what's been done? Well, it's notable to mention the letter that um, there, that was sent to President Moorhead. So it was a letter sent by the Athens Anti-Discrimination Movement, the Clark County NAACP chapter, um, Athens for Everyone, and I don't want to miss anyone, um, but a couple other community groups like that. Um, and they really want the they really want the university to apologize for um, the lack of. I guess, acknowledgement of really what's going on. So while the university has, and this is under um, UGA President Moorhead's kind of administration, has definitely dotted its I's and crossed its T's and done everything kind of correctly, um, community members in these community groups that I mentioned before really feel like they're not looking at the underlying issue, which is that um, the black community was not really part of the conversation as to what was going to happen with these remains. Um, and that kind of goes back to when they were reinterred at Coney Hill Cemetery rather than some of the cemeteries that Linda Davis, who's on the Clark County School Board, wanted to put those remains in. Right. So, so they were they were like sent that. off campus or outside of that area rather than right where they were discovered. Well, and speaking of dotting I's and crossing T's, the UGA president, Jerry Moorhead, did write a letter to the editor in the red and black saying, like, we did it right. We did exactly what we were supposed to do. What has the response been to that? There was a response to that letter. So the Moorhead's letter came in, in response to the letter that was first brought forth by the community groups that I mentioned. And then in response to that, um, you know, in the letter, they kind of criticized Moorhead for, and this is in quotes, the same tired explanations and excuses that we have heard from the UJ administration before. So really just kind of criticizing the administration for not taking a creative approach to the way that this situation could have been handled. Um, and that's really kind of the biggest thing that they've been calling UGA out on. 
Um, they suggest that there are better ways to move forward and they want UGA to come to the table to discuss solutions rather than kind of, you know, rather than just say this is over and done with. We had the memorial. We've done everything we needed to do. Let's stop talking about it. Okay. And this was a, also a letter from faculty, a 120-page document saying that there had been expressing concerns about reinterment process, academic freedom, freedom rather, and even uh, quoting here, intimidation and policing of faculty teaching activities. Sophie, I wonder if you can hang on with us for a short break and come back and address some of those concerns. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we are speaking with Sophie Gratis. She is city news editor for UGA's student newspaper, The Red and Black. We'll be back with more of this conversation after a quick break. This is On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Town and gown tension is high in Athens, Georgia. Community activists and faculty are pressing the UGA administration to do more to address the university's historical role in slavery. We're talking about that with Sophie Gratis, city news editor for UGA student newspaper, The Red and Black. Also talking about the legacy of slavery at SEC schools, school, SEC schools more broadly. Hillary Green is going to join us. She's a professor at the University of Alabama. She also leads tours about Alabama's slave past. But Sophie, I want to pick up what we were just talking about, that the ad hoc committee, committee on Baldwin Hall, that's where the memorial is, submitted a report to the faculty senate of UGA's Colleges of Arts and sciences, 120 pages expressing concerns and saying that there's been intimidation and policing of faculty teaching activities. What did they say they're concerned about? So that was an interesting part of the report. Um, Scott Nesbitt, who's the, a digital humanities professor at UGA, said that the university should acknowledge its history of slavery, and that was quoted in an article. And then later, an unnamed UGA administrator told Nesbitt that Pamela, Pamela Witten, who's the former provost at the university, was not pleased with his remarks. So that was kind of her quote. Um, and that was just kind of one example of how administrators felt they had been attacked. I mean, it's... I think that one of the biggest things to, to kind of focus on is that administrators and faculty members in the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences were doing most of the research regarding Baldwin Hall, and they felt like they, ha they were not being listened to. So the ad hoc committee was actually suggested in March of 2018, and they didn't start doing work until September for whatever kind of administrative reason, you know, how those things go slow. Um, and still at this moment in time. The report was accepted actually last night, um, and the ad hoc committee will remain in place as an investigatory body, um, but they still don't feel like they've been listened to, and the faculty members wanted to make it known to the administration that they felt more could have been done in terms of supporting their research and supporting uh, collaboration with community members that had expressed so much kind of disdain with, with how this whole thing was handled. If you don't mind, I'm going to hold on and bring in Hillary Green. She's a professor at the University of Alabama. She teaches classes and co-directs the African-American Studies program. Hillary also leads alternative campus tours about the lives and experiences and legacy of enslaved people who worked at the University of Alabama in the 19th century. Hillary, thanks for holding on. Thank you for having me. Well, glad to have you with us. So, you know, we are talking about something that is going on specifically at UGA, but this is going on in colleges and universities across the country, this awareness of this and the past of universities and profiting from or owning people, uh, enslaved people. Mm -hmm. So when you're listening to this and hearing what the faculty is saying, what are you hearing? 
I'm here where my institution was back in the early 2000s when we were one of the first institutions uh, following Brown to apologize for the owning of use of slavery and the um, efforts led by Al Brophy and others and making that bold decision, ad hoc community groups and the like. So we predate this, but some of those early debates mirror that. So why was Alabama so ahead of the curve? Was it about the people or the players or the administration? It was a combination of everything. Um, it was the faculty, is led by um, Al Brophy, law professor, who had across the swath uh, faculty support. It was a graduate student support. It was undergrad support. It was alumni support. And it was community members <laughs> and coming together in a uniquely community-based solution to recognize a slave cemetery that was, existed on campus and to get it um, preserved rather than destroyed. And that led to that apology. And uh, it, and so for me, that's where you need a creative solution, but you need to consist uh, all stakeholders involved. And it's more than just the UGA, but the broader Tuscaloosa community in there. So the institutions that we find ourselves in, these schools are in, that legacy also impacts that community. So it's you need all of that together. Well, Sophie, finals do start next week. Graduation is May 10th. How aware are UGA students of what's going on at Baldwin Hall? I think that for the majority, the black students are the ones that are kind of understanding this issue more. Obviously, they, they're going to understand it more. Um, but in terms of people talking about the issue, I'll be honest with you in saying that we talk about it in the newsroom at the Red and Black, but I haven't heard many students talking about it on campus, about, you know, the response from the community, what should be done or anything like that. SGA is slightly involved, but at the same time, they're tied to administration. So how they respond is, is kind of dependent on, on that. So since it's largely community-driven, do you suspect that it might fizzle out when uh, students leave for the summer? I don't think so, because the community members that are really kind of making their voices heard are not students for the most part. They're commissioners. They're members of um, progressive groups that are, you know, part of Athens. And I mean, it's also kind of important to remember that students may not really be understanding um, or not understanding, but being able to relate to what's going on. It's more so the people that are on the ground protesting the administration. Um, like they did at the memorial. And, and it's more, it's not so much students as it is just community members that have lived here for a long time and understand the history and respect the history a little bit more. Well, I do want to ask you about another story that the Red and Black broke last month. This is the UGA chapter of the fraternity Tau Kappa Epsilon, or Teak, as it's known, mm -hmm. was suspended after a group of white students appeared in a racist viral video. The students used racial epithets while, quote unquote, whipping another fraternity member and telling him to pick my cotton. What was the university's response to that? It was pretty prompt, I will say. Um, the students, after a brief investigation, the students were expelled from the fraternity, not from the university, just from the fraternity. And Moorhead did issue a response to the incident. Um, but students ended up coming together to talk about things that they had felt on campus, you know, racism, microaggressions, things that, things that they felt they wanted to, to voice. Um, and that was more of a student-led response rather than an administrative response. There really wasn't a, a huge response on the, the administration's part. So what kind of dialogue was there on campus after that? I and mean, is this seen as connected to an administration accused of not taking concerns about racial history more seriously? 
I think it just kind of adds to that narrative for sure because you have these incidents that happen and then you have kind of these scripted response coming from the administration in the terms of like press releases and even then I mean Moorhead wasn't didn't go to any of these meetings and the administrative um, people on the administration went but they were they declined to comment things like that were sure they're acknowledging what's happening but whether change is actually being implemented on campus is is questionable. I mean, it's really not. One thing that has been done is there's the College of Education is going to be named after one of the first UGA or one of the fat, first black women who graduated from UGA, Mary Frances Early. And that was actually in, in one of Moorhead's response. He said, you know, this is one of the things that we're doing. But is that really what needs to be done? Is that what the black community and black students want? We're not really sure. Well, yes, we've spoken to Mary Frances early on this very program and proud to do so. Sophie, I know you have a, a, a newspaper to put to bed, so I want to thank you so much for your time. Thanks for talking with me. Sophie Gratis, she's city news editor for UGA's independent student newspaper, The Red and Black. want to keep you on the line. Certainly, Hillary, you mentioned that this, mm-hmm. you know, back in 2004, the University of Alabama made these moves to mm-hmm. acknowledge and, and apologize for, publicly apologize for having profited from slavery. Is it obvious parallel between Alabama and UGA that, you know, there's a marker, there's an acknowledgement. What other parallels do you see between these two schools and the ongoing dialogues about slavery on college campuses? One of the things when I arrived at the University of Alabama in 2014, despite having a marker, despite this bold history, what has emerged, what has emerged was a silence around, we gave them a marker, that's all we need to do. Mm-hmm. So my second semester at the University of Alabama, I had a black male student in one of my classes question, well, slavery did not exist here, so why does this matter? And this, and what it made me realize was, despite this, the lack of ongoing engagement that students could come to the campus, and he wasn't alone. Um, I, I started asking other students. I went on the tour, figure out what they were learning, <laughs> and talked to people who did the um, orientation, and realized they're not getting this information. A lot of them didn't know where this mar- apology marker was. They didn't know this history. It was as if it never existed. So that prompted me to go into the archives and to develop a tour. And this student comment occurred in late January 2015, so my second semester. I gave my first tour that um, August in the heat (laughs) with a group of students. Um, And since now, um, four years in, I'm almost at 4,000. I just went over 4,000 people reached. Um, and it includes students, faculty, alumni, and their own Black History Month uh, community members. Okay, so this is not an obligatory, you know, with mm-hmm. student orientation tour, people sign up for this tour. What do you call them? I call them the hallowed ground tours. Hmm, the hallowed ground tours. To remind tours. us the, of the land that we're walking on, the people who work there, and are hidden, and their labor is hidden in plain sight. What, what are some of the kind of things that people are surprised by that you discovered in the archives about specific humans? I mean, of course, there's not a lot of record for a lot of enslaved people, but what have you found? Yeah, you know, one of the things I, I've made a point is that instead of having this one monolithic mass was to connect individuals with specific existing buildings. So on the tour, to get a general history, but on in front of certain buildings, they actually learned the names of the people who worked in that space and what their experiences were like there. And when we, and then I also addressed the legacy, the legacy part of the campus, but also to in my research, I am a I do post-war information. I made sure I figured out what happened to these people after the Civil War. 
So I've now identified five individuals, including their wills. I know when they died <laughs> and what they did. So connecting them from slavery and when this campus is destroyed to what happened afterwards, and they all became educators and activists in Tuscaloosa. Hmm. So that connection between the town and the city, and then pick up the story with the civil rights movement and that history and that training was done in the town coming back into the campus. So it's that long extended legacy, but they learn about people. We're speaking with the historian and University of Alabama professor Hillary Green, and we're it's part of a conversation about the history of slavery on college campuses, and this is something that has been looked at by a consortium of schools mm-hmm. right now uh, that include Harvard University, Wesleyan University here in Georgia, a number of them who are which are studying the effects of slavery and the role of enslaved people inside of college campuses. Mm-hmm. However, is Alabama a part of that? We are not, uh, but this is one of the recent developments in my re-engagement. Last October, um, the faculty senate actually passed a resolution to, to to join to do more about this history, to have a more of a not just an ad hoc committee, uh, but a commission. And then a part of that commission, one of the first tasks was to be to join the um, consortium, and it is in the works. Um, it's going to be led by Dr. Uh, Christine Taylor, who's our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer, um, VP, Senior VP, and uh, it's in, process, in progress. So it will, I, I, we will be soon, hopefully, fingers crossed, joining soon, but it's, the process has started. So this is, you know, at a time when just last week students at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. voted on a referendum. This is a non-binding resolution to pay reparations to uh, people, enslaved people. So this is something that a lot of universities and schools are looking at. Um, here in Georgia, you know, there's been a, the Athens chapter of the NAACP sent President Moorhead an open letter urging the university to take responsibility for its mm-hmm. role in white supremacy. And going further than that, creating full tuition scholarships for descendants of enslaved people who worked mm-hmm. on UGA's campus. Uh, what kind of response are these kind of demands making uh, being made in this in Southern schools, for example, in SEC schools? One of the things I hear is not just the scholarship and part of the um, reparations, because I've heard those calls across the board, but one of the things is it's a demand for a multi-prong, multi-dimensional solution. So scholarships is one thing. And UGA has a unique situation that most schools don't are more aligned with Georgetown. they got the DNA of these um, 25 individuals. Mm-hmm. So they can actually prove descent and expand in the category what is legacy when you really do have legacy of the land that the school's built on with people who were ensla- most likely enslaved of African descent. And with the advent of genealogy and ancestry.com and others, it might be they can actually prove descent <laughs> where other individuals don't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, clear line. But ongoing education, and that's one of the things I've heard across the board. This is not just a monument, an apology, but what do you do for sustainable discussions? Tours, markers, buildings, classes, all of that as a part of a reparation suite of 
solutions, not just one all fits all model. Right. And so this consortium of universities, are they they're studying slavery? Is there any kind of standardized set of uh, of curriculum or even reparations for for slavery on college campuses? Or is it a case by case basis? It's usually case by case. But one of the things that's consistent because each campus is different. And each communities are different. But one thing that cuts across the board is education, tours, and some form of scholarship fund <laughs> mm-hmm. in there. And um, new buildings, new memorials. So our name and practices of buildings. Uh, University of Alabama just named the building after our legacy from the civil rights movement. And one of the things I've seen um, the young woman who was there before is sometimes this history of slavery is used in current day race problems. Okay. And so that, how do you respond and preempt that? But also how do you become the capstone and lead your schools and lead your states? So we have just a minute left, but I okay. want to go back to this this open letter mm-hmm. from the Athens organizations inviting UGA's administration to a public meeting called Reparations Now Town Hall. That's planned for tonight. Mm-hmm. Based on your experience promoting conversations about slavery at Alabama, mm-hmm. any recommendations for how to achieve a more productive dialogue around something that is painful for very many people to bring up? This is a community-based solution. It's hard. It's difficult, but it requires empathy and it requires listening. And it requires not coming in or with some kind of preconceived notion of what the outcome is, but rather work together and build in that solution. And that's difficult work, but this is where you can truly have a solution and a, uh, where you can move forward to truly have a reconciled communities. And Athens is a part of the UGA community. So they, too, need to be at the table and ongoing, but to have and listen and work as one. The goal is a better future. Hillary Green, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. University of Alabama professor Hillary Green. She's co-director of Alabama's African-American Studies program. And more than 4,000 people have participated in her, her tours focused on the lives, experiences, and legacies of enslaved people who worked and lived on the University of Alabama campus before the Civil War. Now, we do have some listener comments for our story about HBCUs. That's on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Please join us all and join us again tomorrow for more of On Second Thought. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Virginia Prescott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.